0: Keep back your servant from, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. If you know this last verse, please speak it with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These are the words of the Lord.
1: Thanks. Again, please do keep your Bibles open to Psalm chapter 19. If you do not have a Bible, take that as our gift to you. And if you are joining us for the very first time, just know we are so glad that you are here. Welcome to you. Again, my name is Pastor Evan Skelton. I am the pastor here at Bayless, and I would love to connect with you, find out more of your story. If you would, do me a favor today. This Bayless card, which you're going to find on your seat, Please do fill this out with some information for us to contact you, as much as information as you are comfortable with. We'd love to find out a little bit more about what brings you here today and how we can be of service to you as a church. On the back side, and this, for everyone here, you'll find a place to re- leave prayer requests and comments. Please let us know what's going on in your life. How can we pray for you? How can we follow up with you? It's one of the best ways we know of how to care for you well. So please do uh, fill out this card and you can return it after service either to myself somebody wearing a hello tag, or you can place it in the um, offering plates at the back of the room, um, which you'll see on the tables with the tablecloths. So, please, again, keep your Bibles open, um, and if you uh, need to, grab that Bible under your seat. It's going to be especially important. I'm going to be back and forth from these words. The last thing, again, you need from me is a uh, pep talk or a TED talk. You, We need God's words, don't we? And so, I hope that you'll keep it open. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 19. If you can believe it, it's our last psalm uh, for the summer, and I'm sad about that, excited to announce next week for a two-part series that we're going to be doing, but um, again, this is our last time we'll be in the psalms this summer, and I cannot wait to get into this psalm particularly. Do you know C.S. Lewis, famous Christian author, um, said about Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the book of psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Once we get into it, I think you're going to see why. Um, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite psalms, and I know favorite psalms of several who I've read this to. But um, before we get into it, it's no secret that in this season—give me a sec—that our family, um, to make ends meet in this unique season, I've, I've had to work a couple jobs. So I work uh, sometimes uh, several part-time jobs, including as a, uh, as a freelance graphic artist. I've um, been handed a camera to take pictures before, and I didn't know what in the world I was doing. Well, recently, about two weeks ago, unexpectedly, I've begun teaching again, um, which has been a blast for me. I um, have been specifically teaching Old Testament history and New Testament history at Missouri Baptist University. And I think my interview process was the exact opposite of how it's supposed to go. Last minute, they had a, a faculty member um, leave this position that I filled as an affiliate. Um, and uh, they called to offer me the position, then informed me um, by email that same day that I had to be there that weekend for training, went to the training where they scheduled my interview with the dean, and then as I exited my interview, they handed me my application packet. So it was just, it was just such a convoluted uh, process for me, nonetheless, I, I, I realized how much I've missed this. I've actually taught in Colorado before, and I've missed teaching college students particularly. It's something I love about teaching college students. Um, My class is one of the first that they get to take, the only Bible course that, uh, there's two courses that I teach, Old Testament and New, those are the only Bible courses they have to take, and uh, and many of them are freshmen coming trying to figure out adulthood, uh, let alone um, trying to navigate the Bible for the first time, and that's exactly, about 70% of my students don't come as claiming to be Christians, Um, many of them, it's their very first time reading the Bible at all, and I love watching them take their first steps in reading God's word and walking beside them, even as it comes with questions and shock and confusion. I love to be able to, again, watch the power of God at work in that class. As some students be, are moved with what they read about Christ and about God and his steadfast love, and, and as God God's word m- makes them Christians. like it's, just a, it's a fascinating thing to see God's word and the promises God makes about his word played out in front of me. Um, not everybody loves my class, and I'm going to find out that again probably with uh, class evaluations. And my students definitely keep me on my toes. I don't know how many times I've had to tell them. I, I you know, I'm not sure. I'm probably going to need to go find out. But there's one particular ca- question that stands out to me that gets asked almost every semester. And it's a, it's a question that perhaps stands out to me because it's a question I've wrestled with and did wrestle with growing up. You see, as we read God's Word, we hear these stories about... God speaking to Abraham and to Moses, to Isaiah, showing up to Paul. All these stories about God revealing himself and speaking to certain individuals as you might speak to a friend. And I remember wondering as a a kid, man, I wish God spoke to me like that. Why doesn't God show up that way in my life? You know, my students... um, It's not maybe just my students, perhaps many of us. We wish God would just speak clearly in our lives. I mean, don't you ever feel like it would be so helpful if you could just hear from God directly, maybe just once? You ever face a decision where you just wish God would tell you what to do? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever experienced that. Even our secular culture, it turns out, has not been able to uh, shake this desire to know, to hear from something beyond them to gain clarity over their lives, to understand and to hear from something supernatural, maybe the universe. Just think of how astrology, in times where we love science, something that's as baseless as astrology, has nonetheless taken the world by storm again. Um, And how much uh, horror movies, how many tickets horror movies sell every year or how many alien conspiracy theories cycle the internet. Please do not send these to me, okay? Um, Many of us have this deep desire to connect with something beyond us. Like, if we could just hear from something beyond us, we could gain a sense of clarity over our lives. You see, Christians understand that this desire actually has been given to us by God. And it's actually a longing for God himself. One of the most fascinating distinctives, though, about Christianity is the notion that God doesn't just leave us searching for him. He doesn't leave us just hoping we might grab onto something as we guess in the dark. No, God loves us so much that he has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us, that we have a God who speaks and is still speaking today. I want to look at Psalm 19, which tells us about the ways that God speaks in three parts. First, we're going to look at the God who speaks. Number two, we're going to look at the word that saves. And third, we're going to look at the servant that hears. So I hope you are ready to get to work this morning with me. Let's begin with that first one the God who speaks. I want to read these verses one more time verses 1 through 2 again just because they're so powerful. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You may have never realized it before but God's speaking, God's speech is one of them. It's one of the major themes in the Bible. Just think of how God's word begins, if you are familiar with this, in Genesis chapter 1, when it speaks of the creation of all that exists. What's the shift between non-existence and existence of all that we know? It's God speaking. It says, God said, let there be light, and then there was. Later on, we're going to hear in the Bible about how God speaks to Abraham to begin to call to himself a people who he would take as his special possession, from whom the Messiah would be born. God also speaks to Moses, famously through this burning bush, commissioning him to be the rescuer of that people. God then speaks through prophets, warning his people of disobedience or disaster, or speaks through an angel, bringing good news to the Virgin Mary. Literally every single turning point In God's plan of rescue, literally every single turning point in which God intervenes, interrupts, He creates, He calls, all of this is by God's speaking. However, in uh, these verses, in verses one through six particularly, it's going to focus on one example of God's speech that we may not think of as God speaking nature. God speaks through nature. Now, one of the things you may have noticed about the times we are in um, is that they're pretty divided times, and we're not only uh, talking about, let's just think of the topic of creation or nature, not talking about nature, not only talking about nature more than ever before, we are absolutely divided over it. In fact, if I was to survey this room of your opinions when it comes to global warming, carbon emissions, environmentalism, climate crisis, or recycling. Am I, am I going to get back the same opinion? Probably not, and some of us get irritated those who are on the opposite side of this issue. Some of us are convinced that all this talk sounds like liberal conspiracy, while others say that this is the defining issue of our times. I have found that our posture, nonetheless, towards creation comes down to something far more important than merely what side of the political spectrum we fall on. It's about something far more than politics. Generally speaking, I think many of us, whether we consider ourselves to be religious or not, drift to one side of a spectrum. We either diminish creation or we worship it. We either diminish nature or we worship it. Let me tell you what I mean. First, this first extreme, diminishing creation, some of us have treated the created order as expendable. The world is a product to be consumed without thoughts of how our actions affect future generations, let alone many poor and indigenous communities around the world. In fact, we, we scoff at the idea that it could have impacts on others. Unfortunately, I've seen this particular response amongst many religious people. Perhaps out of a reaction to tree huggers you might have seen in the 60s, many religious people took an openly skeptical posture towards the environment, Uh, many of them arguing, well, this isn't our home anyways, well, it's all going to burn up anyways, isn't it? I've heard this argument from many before, but it's not just uh, religious people who can diminish the environment, it's actually many irreligious that I find this as well, as they Look at the creation, the natural order, as something merely to be studied, to be examined, to be dissected, something held off from a distance just to be understood. Instead of being moved by creation, they dissect it for something in a textbook. You know, see, this is actually a way of diminishing creation as well. There's a second posture, isn't there, and that is of worshiping creation. Some treat the planet with a kind of mystical reverence. Um, revering earth as their mother and diminishing human beings as just being another tenant on her planet. I think of a recent tweet sent out, believe it or not, by by a theological seminary which said, today in chapel, so it's a chapel where they normally would gather, I think, historically to study God's word and respond to it. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief our joy, our regret, our hope, guilt and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too too often fail to honor. In other words, they held a chapel service to confess their sins to the plants in their lives. The tweet that they sent out then asked the question, what do you confess to the plants in your life? It was hard for me not to laugh when I read that, Nonetheless, we, we do, we, this is an extreme, but nonetheless, we find ourselves on this continuum, either diminishing creation or worshiping creation. It's interesting, the Bible will not let us do either. It won't let us diminish the environment. After all, one of the mandates that God gave the first human beings in Genesis 1 was to care for and to steward the raw materials of this world. Why? As a means of loving those who would come after them, and as a means of bringing God glory. The God, same God who entrusted it to them has asked, asked them to use it well. But, and um, it also will not um, allow us then to worship the environment for the whole point of the beauty and the intricacy of this create, created world, which we are to show off, we are, which we are to celebrate, which we are to witness The whole point of this glory and intricacy is to be a flashing neon sign, not to the creation, but pointing directly to the creator. Romans 1, which I just read, will say that instead of worshiping God as God, we turned and served and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Rather than diminish or worship creation, though, we are made instead to hear creation. Let me tell you what I mean by this. So, growing up in cities most of my life, well, actually, let me ask, uh, raise your hand if you grew up in, uh, like, uh, near a place where you could see the stars regularly. You you grew up maybe in a rural community. How many of us grew in a city where it was more difficult? That's me. So, I could not really see the stars at night, uh, but perhaps that's why it was so significant for me when I was in Boy Scouts, and I would go camping, and I'd be um, under an open sky far away from city lights. You know, on those kind of nights where the moon itself is dark, and you just see the, like, band of the Milky Way stretching across the sky. Have you ever had that kind of experience where it doesn't just take your breath away, it makes you feel very, very small? It's as if the sky is speaking to you. This, all of this, is not about you. The thing is, creation is speaking to us all the time. And I don't mean in some, like, mystical sense. Please don't go home and hug the tree in your yard and say, what do you have truth to reveal to me today, Mr. Maple? I mean, like, I, I don't want you to go and hear this in so many strange new age sense. What I mean is that is that whether it's the unique colors of a sunset or the mysterious images of a distant galaxy or the smell of the coming rain or the strength of ocean waves or the intricacies of a cell under a microscope or the strangeness of a spider or the power of a lion, or the fury of the windstorm that we had two weeks ago, we are being preached at. The imagery is, again, it says in verse 2 that the, just on the sky, it's just focusing on the sky, it says it's pouring out speech. It's like a, a, full, a, a faucet on full blast. It, uh, it is bursting um, with, with speech. It can't shut up about God. And it's not just telling us that there is a God who exists, it's telling us of his wisdom, of his power, of his beauty, of his irresistible rule, of his glory. In verse 4 through 6, David just hones in on one more example, on the sun, as it goes from one side of the sky to the other, its strength, its purity, its brilliance, its regularity. It's no wonder that much of the ancient world worshipped the sun as a God. But David knows that the sun isn't ultimate. The sun itself, as mighty as it seemed to his ancient world, is just a servant. Its place and its course were set by the very God it serves. But as Paul puts it in Romans 1, verse 19, "...for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived." ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, speaking of humanity, so they are without excuse. Some of us, honestly including me, live our lives just at such a hurried pace, so distracted that we miss the voice of creation. One of the tragedies of a a world that never goes outside So we no longer allow God's world to move us. And more importantly, to hear it say to us, this, all of this is not about you. Some of us need simply to be told to slow down. Go for a long walk today. Maybe before you uh, open up Facebook in the morning, step outside. Hear the birds, feel the cool air. Ground yourself. Remember, you are a created being as well. Other of us, others of us need to care more about creation than we do. Maybe not to be as skeptical as we have been that our actions do have consequences on those around us. Isn't that the doctrine of sin that we learn about in the Bible? Our actions really do affect those around us. We need to consider that human beings can really affect their physical world and in some very negative ways and miss out on giving God the glory that He deserves. Others may have to pay the cost for that, those choices, in fact. If we want others to worship God in the things he has made, some of us need to just be told to care. But this leads to another, and it turns out an even more important voice, an even more vital way that God speaks to us today, and this is number two, the word that saves now, Grace, my wife, will tell you that at least once a day, probably multiple times a day, I am looking for something in our house, and I am hopelessly unable to find it. Anybody else like that here? For some reason, I find it's often men. Like, we just, I, I could be searching for it for 15 minutes in a half, wondering where my keys, my wallet, my sanity went. Like, and I, and I, you know what's even worse, though, is knowing that I can't find it, and then I have to go ask my wife. I, I, I go and say to her, sweetheart, I I can't find it, only to have her answer, well, let me go check. You know why? Because it takes like 10 seconds before my wife is able to find it. I don't know what it's about me, but I can miss the things that are right in front of my face. Anybody else like this? As I mentioned before, God, um, God wants, we, we want God, to, we want to hear from him. We want to hear what God says to us. We want to hear God speak to us personally. We've been searching for it, longing for it. I've talked to many Christians who deeply struggle like this. They want God just to show up in their lives, to speak to them with clarity, wondering why God feels so distant and silent. Yet, when I ask what their study of the Bible is like, they say, well, it's not great to be honest. Friends, I, I fear many of us are missing what is right in front of our face. We want to hear a word from God, yet we leave the word of God unopened. I know we have many reasons for doing so. Some of us, we're not sure that we can trust the Bible. Over the years, we've built up a wall of assumptions and cynicism against it. We couldn't imagine that the Bible would be where we would go to connect with God. Others of us, we find the Bible to be just irrelevant. We're not sure how a book written thousands of years ago could possibly matter to the unique challenges and times we are in. We've tried to read it before, but it takes work to understand, and it doesn't seem to address the immediate issues on the front of my mind, especially when the toddlers are screaming at me. Some of us, to be honest, we just find it boring. It, when it comes to it, we, it feels like eating salad. We know it should be good for us, but man, Instagram or Netflix seem to be calling my name right now. Maybe we just have way too much to do, um, and we're not sure what the payoff is exactly, and spending extended time trying to meditate on and apply God's word, it lacks a sugar high or quick payoff. And still many of us find that the Bible, what the Bible says that it's yeah, disagreeable. It doesn't sit well with us. It messes with our desires and behaviors. We're pretty sure that if we were to open it, all we would find are more reasons for why I should be ashamed. Maybe it would just burst to flames in my hand. Still, many of your posture is more jaded than that. You're pretty sure that the Bible is standing in the way, isn't it, of the progress we're making as a society, and you wonder if the Bible finally needs to catch up or be left in the dust. I know many who love the first first six verses of this passage and what they're talking about. They love the thought of connecting with God and nature. But when it comes to the Bible, it seems more distant or dead, disconnected from their lives. Reading the Bible seems to be a chore that good Christians should do, or maybe a pastime for those who have more time on their hands than I do. But as beautiful as the verses are about the revealing nat- power of nature, David seems to sing when it comes to God's word. Why? Well, I think he gives us actually six reasons in verses seven through nine. We're going to consider each of them briefly. I want to look at these phrases. First, reviving the soul. This is the same image used in Psalm 23 reviving the soul. The Bible offers healing to the whole person. Healing to the whole person. What do I mean by this? Okay, reviving the soul. Again, Psalm 23, a very famous psalm to many, about a good shepherd who leads us, makes me lie down um, in green pastures, who leads me beside still waters, who restores my soul or revives my soul. I know many of us come here bearing and perhaps avoiding a great deal of hurt in our lives, maybe church hurt, we're not sure if we can be put right again. David seems to think that the Bible has the power to heal us at a deep level, to restore our trust, to enable us to bear our pain another day, to give us the power to forgive even ourselves to revive the soul. It offers rest to the weary. It offers love to the heartbroken. It offers forgiveness to the ashamed. The Bible offers healing to the whole person because the Bible offers Christ. B, making wise the simple, or second, making wise the simple. The Bible makes one wise for life. Okay, we need to understand two of these categories, simple and wise. The simple are are those in the Bible who are easily uh, swayed, who are tossed around, whose opinion seems very fickle. They follow the loudest or most compelling voice in the room or pulled irresistibly by their desires every time. To be honest, we're actually a lot more like the simple than we would like to admit. The wise, however, are grounded and convictional. They retain their grip even when it's not popular to do so or even uh, if it would cost them a great deal. In fact, they are able to navigate changing circumstances and uncertain times with peace, certain about their God's character and will. So how do then the simple become wise? The Bible not simply by learning from its character's examples or listening to the Bible's life advice, but because the Bible is where we find Jesus, who is called the wisdom of God, who through him we not only come to know God, but we come to love God supremely. The Bible makes you wise for life. Third, rejoicing the heart. The Bible brings lasting joy. Notice that language, rejoicing this heart, the heart. It, David doesn't seem to regard the Bible, as many of us do, as some sort of dusty duty. In times of despair and discouragement, in fact, he doesn't turn to booze or work or to Disney Plus. He runs to the Word of God. Why? Because even when we cannot see beyond the clouds in our lives, In the Bible, we find a bedrock assurance that God is for those who love him. And he has gone to infinite lengths to make them his own. Which means, again, in the Bible, we find Jesus. And so long as the good news about him is true, God is for us. And only good things wait for those who belong to him. Is there any other reason we could look to for joy? Stable, steadfast, lasting joy. Number four, enlightening the eyes. The Bible reveals the world as it is. Enlightening the eyes. The Bible reveals the world as it is. I don't know about you, but it seems like everything in our world today has a spin on it, doesn't it? It can be hard to keep our balance, to understand what it is we should believe or what we should think about what we believe or what we should, how we should feel about what we think about what we believe. We are being offered all sorts of answers as to how the world is supposed to be, what stands in our way, and what can make it right again. Is it politics? Is it police reform? Is it pollution control or patriotism? In the Bible, we find, it turns out, our assumptions corrected. And make no mistake, all of us will find our assumptions corrected. Just give it enough time, for in the story of the scriptures, we find God's story and how we actually fit into it. Only that story can make you both skeptical of the false hopes that others give you for the future, being offered to you as the way that we're going to save ourselves, but it also makes you hopeful in a world in which everyone seems to be collapsing in fear. The Bible reveals the world as it is, Five, it endures forever. The Bible does not change with the times. I realize many of us wish it would. After all, some other religions, like Mormonism, for example, receive prophetic updates so that they can leave some of their unpopular doctrines behind. It's like a safety valve. But think of what this would actually come to say about God. If the Bible was always changing with the times, would it ever then be able to disagree with us? And if it never disagreed with us, how would we know whether the direction that we are heading in is actually for our good? Are we really so objective? Would we ever really be able to change when it matters? And what reason would we have to hope in a fickle God who is always trying to get people to like him. We need God's word to be steady and enduring because we need God to be steady and enduring. In fact, it is the Christian's resilient commitment to the unchanging word of God that has allowed them to speak out when the rest of the world disagrees with them on issues like racism and genocide And government corruption, just as the church now finds itself speaking about abortion and about the abandonment of God's design for marriage or gender. All of us will find the Bible disagree with us at some point. It will disagree with the cultures and times that we're in. It will disagree even with some of our most deeply held assumptions and desires, but the gospel shows us that God's way is the only way to life, and it can be trusted. And this leads to number six, righteous altogether. You can build your life upon the Bible. Again, you can build your life upon the Bible. The word that stands out here is altogether. This means like of one accord, of of all united, of of all of a piece, It means that the Bible, every part of the Bible, yes, that includes Leviticus, in its entirety is entirely dependable. Just look at some of the words that we've skipped over here. It is perfect. It is sure. It's right. It's pure, clean, true. The Bible is sound, friends. It's free of corruption and hypocrisy. It's the one thing that will not mislead us. It is perfectly just, flawless. Christians don't mean this as some sort of blind claim, of course. You see, the truth of God's Word, the reliability of God's Word, is contingent upon what we understand, uh, who we understand God to be, what we understand He is like. If God really does want to speak to us, and the Bible really is a byproduct of a loving God who wants to be known and wants to be loved, it only makes sense that this word that he has given can indeed be trusted. If you are looking to hear from God, I have to tell you, you cannot find anything so dependable, so certain, so revealing of your own heart as what is found in this book. Yes, even the nature. In fact, look at the words that is used for God in this psalm when referring to nature, for instance, in verses 1 through 6. Did you know it only uses God's name once? And this is not just nerding out about key details. These are included with purpose. It uses uh, the word for God, El, which in Hebrew is the most generic term that it could use for the creator God. And yet when referring to God's word, when it's referring to the scriptures, it uses what name? It uses the Lord or Yahweh. It is using God's covenant name, his personal name. Why? Because it's only in God's word that we have God as he is revealed to us in his saving purposes. And that name is used seven times, which is not coincidental. It is is perfectly sufficient in revealing God to us. Only We we may read in nature or see in nature, if we hear it, about God's uh, power and rule, but only in the Bible do we find out what it means to know this God and what lengths he has gone to rescue us. Only in this word do we find the one that David calls his rock and redeemer. It's no wonder that the psalmist says that the Bible, then, is more desirable than money even sweeter than honey it's no wonder that jesus says man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god you can trust it you can orient your life by it you can build your life upon it now i would be foolish not to ask before we move on to our third point friends how well do you know this word How regularly do you read this word and in its entirety? How long has it been since you opened the Bible and lingered there? And when you do read the word, is it only your favorite sections you come back to over and over again, avoiding the uncomfortable uncomfortable bits? Do you find yourself reading it just to check another thing off your list? If you were to pinpoint one or two things that stand in the way of you reading the Bible on a regular basis, what would they be? Let me ask you, what step can you take this week to correct it? How can you build toward the Bible being one of the most regular patterns in your daily routine to where it becomes unimaginable unimaginable for you to not spend daily time in the Word, almost as unimaginable as not eating? Perhaps you just need to start with five minutes and ask three questions. What am I, about what I'm reading, what does it reveal about God? What does it reveal about my need for Jesus? And how would I live differently if this really was true? What does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about my need for Jesus? And how would I live differently if this was true? And let me tell you, if you are looking for some resources to begin studying the Bible for yourself— Again, I, there's three things I want to point you to that are actually all included at the table before you exit today, that small table. First, we've got a card that we that we prepared called a pattern for daily worship, and it walks step-by-step step with what we hope to encourage you to um, on to, uh, one model of how to study God's word on a daily basis. The second is a reading plan that will take you through the entire Bible in two years. Again, not just going back to your favorite sections, but taking all of God's word. And the third is um, a small devotional, although I don't love devotionals as a replacement. It may help those of you who are looking for some first steps. It walks through the book of Psalms in a year. And so I would encourage you, it's got, again, a psalm and then a commentary and a prayer. Take that as, again, our gift to you. We've got a few of those out there. But this leads, again, to our third and final section. The most important thing we could get is the servant who hears. Again, I've spoken too many who want to read God's Word. And yet, despite how hard they try, they cannot seem to make a routine of it. Or they struggle to find their time in the Bible anything other than dry and dissatisfying. And if this is you, you are not alone. There are others, plenty of others, in this room who experience that too. But I think that in the final verses of Psalm 19, we find a path toward change. And it has to do with our heart's innermost attitude, our posture when we read, You see, it's not merely enough to read God's word and expect to be changed. This can happen, of course. God can be wonderfully disruptive in that way. And I know some of you, that's your story. But the Bible can only be read, truly read, when we allow it to read us. The Bible can only be read, truly read, when we allow it to read us. Notice David's attitude here. Betraying popular assumptions, David doesn't trust his heart that much, does he? he's rather skeptical of it. He says, who can discern his errors? He knows that he does not have objectivity over his life and that many of his his faults are hidden even from him. Derek Kidner points out, not because these faults are too small to see, but because they are too characteristic to register. Because they're our habits. We can't see them because we do them all the time. David knows that unless David can see himself as he is, he won't be free at all. He knows that sin, especially when it is unseen, has dominion over our lives. It rules over us. It masters us. We're unable and unaware of our slavery, and we're unable to break it. And so David comes to God's word not merely as a spectator looking to be wowed. He doesn't merely come to God's word as a student looking to geek out. He comes as a servant, desperate to know his king and to do him no dishonor, whether it's his actions or his words or merely his secret thoughts. He so loves his God that he wants only to do what is acceptable in his sight. We can only read the word, friends, if we have that same posture. We can only read it truly when we are willing, desperate even, for it to read us too, to see what we have been hiding from everyone else, even ourselves, that we might know the restoration, the joy, the truth, and the stability, and the beauty that comes from knowing God and his word. If you want this kind of humility and desperation, I have to say that it's not found in neglecting God's word. It should make sense to us. I don't know how many people I've told, I've talked to who are taking a break from the Bible because they've just found they weren't feeling it for a while. I tell you what, I cannot expect to love my wife and children more if I spend less time with them. If you want to love God's word, you must begin by reading God's word. But more than that, you need to see the point of God's word, and this is where I want to leave us, friends. You need to let that word lead you to Christ. To see his death upon the cross And in his death, all of your hidden faults that David is so desperate to see, even your presumptuous sins put on full display. To see the only one who truly treasured and obeyed God's word, Jesus Christ, who is called both the servant of God and the word of God, crucified, that I might be finally acceptable in God's sight. He is both the rock to build your life on and the Redeemer who has brought you back from the sin and dominion, uh, uh, that dominion and sin of death. Let your heart and your mind be filled with the glory and goodness of Jesus until you feel your apathy towards the word of God wane and your desire increase. But whether you're feeling it or not, read God's word. God loves you so dearly as to speak to you. Lord, um, we come as those who want to listen, want to hear, don't want to reject a gift that you have given us, even if we might find it disagreeable, even if we think we need something else. Because we trust you, we want to trust your word. Some of us need help to take our first steps in reading the Bible for ourselves. We need to pick it up again. Or maybe to change our heart's posture towards it, knowing that we've been reading it regularly, but not with the same desperation that David has. We know that the only thing that can produce a love for God, let alone his word in us, is the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us see him and see what he's endured for our sake, the word of God, who reveals God clearly to us, who shows that his goodness and mercy and wisdom and justice all in perfect display. We'd be compelled by what he has endured for our sake to make us acceptable before, before God so that we would read, we would listen, and obey. It's for Christ's sake, in light of his power, which he alone has accomplished, we pray. Amen.